Hello and welcome to Socialism, the weekly Marxist podcast from the Socialist Party. The largest demonstration in Chile's history floods the streets of the capital. Protesters in the north march on army barracks and soldiers withdraw rather than challenge them. The hated neoliberal government of Sebastián Piñera is suspended in mid-air by a mass movement. A spontaneous rebellion of revolutionary proportions is unfolding in Chile, a country with a history of revolution, counter-revolution, military dictatorship and working-class heroism. In fact, a revolutionary wave is washing over the entire continent. The tasks for socialists and the workers' movement are urgent. This episode of Socialism looks at Latin America in revolt, the uprising in Chile. Today we're speaking to Tony Sonwa, Secretary of the Committee for a Workers' International, about the latest groundswell of mass popular action against the capitalist establishment following Algeria, Sudan, Hong Kong and elsewhere, now Chile. Hello Tony. Good morning James. Now capitalist commentators for some time have held Chile up as an example of stability in an otherwise turbulent continent. There has been some surprise from these oracles that Chile has exploded like this, but for Trotskyists like the Committee for Workers International, it was no surprise. Why is that? Well, we've analysed the situation in Chile and indeed throughout the whole of Latin America, and the thing is with Chile is it was the birthplace of neoliberalism. I mean, really, the neoliberal policies that we've seen applied globally in the last 20 years or so were begun in Chile. They applied them after the military coup in 1973, Mm -hmm. with the transition to so-called democracy in 1989. Every single government since then, including the one headed by the Socialist Party presidential uh, nominee, uh, Michelle Bachelet, every single one of them has introduced neoliberal policies. And while Chile has relatively had a success in terms of a relatively consistent growth rate, in its economy, which was based on particular factors, nevertheless has been this grinding inequality which has increased in the course of the past period. And it burst asunder actually in 2006 with a marvellous movement by the school students, Mm. which was called the Revolt of the Penguins, which is a movement (laughs) demanding education reform, and there has been sporadic protests ever since. But really, it's intensified the neoliberal attacks, particularly has been outrage on the pensions question, And really now, it's an accumulation of more than 30 years of just bitterness and hatred, of protests against low wages, against the whole gambit of the neoliberal policies which have been applied. And this has been accumulating for a period of years. Our comrades in Chile, in Socialismo Revolucionario, have been predicting this for some time. Nobody could identify exactly when or what the trigger would be. But, of course, it was the increase in the metro affairs which has triggered this initial outpouring of rage and anger, which has now gone further and includes big elements of a whole revolutionary process taking place. So Chile has, from that sense, gone from being the most stable of the Latin American countries. Two weeks before these protests began, Piñera, the president, boasted about Chile being an oasis of calm in the turbulent seas of Latin America. Mm. Well, the tsunami has now hit Chile, and Mm. then we see this social revolt taking place. And, of course, this has taken place in Chile on the backs of a whole series of other movements which have taken place. We saw the marvellous revolutionary upsurge 
in Ecuador. Mm -hmm. We've seen turmoil and political protests for general strikes in Argentina and the recent defeat of Macri, neoliberal president. You've seen a whole wave of movements and protests in Brazil, 47 million on general strike. And really, it's almost like the revolutionary explosions and the movement of masses have leapfrogged from one country to another. Mm. And really, it is a confirmation in a very living way of the broad ideas of Trotsky's theory of the permanent revolution. The theory of the permanent revolution. Where a revolution in one country would affect and stimulate the movement in other countries and it could develop and spread. And really, that's what's happening throughout Latin America at this stage. Now, the protest in Santiago, the capital of Chile, on the 25th of October, reportedly numbered 2 million, which I understand would make it the biggest protest in Chilean history. What is the current state of this mass movement? Well, since that demonstration, which you're right, James, to say, was the largest demonstration ever recorded in Chilean history. And the current state is that following that movement, well, there was a two-day general strike and mass protests took place. And incidentally, the day that demonstration took place, There was no call for a demonstration. Mm. People just flooded into the city centre, assuming a mass protest march would take place. Now, since then, the movement has continued. The government's been forced into retreat and made some concessions, but nevertheless, the protests have continued. And yesterday, there was a call for a further general strike for the day. And within that, you saw a demonstration of tens of thousands, well, over 100,000 taking place in Santiago yesterday. And there's no indication this movement is going to subside. People are enraged and they want the government out. And really, you could say the genie is out of the bottle. And however this movement develops, Chile is never going to return to the situation it was prior to this protest eruption. So these small concessions made by the president, sacking several ministers, a small increase in the minimum wage, a small increase in taxation on the rich, these have not been enough to satisfy the mass movement? Absolutely not. People have taken it as what it is. It's an attempt to buy off the movement and they're demanding more. Appetite comes with eating. He had a change in his cabinet. He asked for the resignation of all members of the cabinet and at the end of the day it resulted in five new cabinet ministers and three cabinet ministers having a change of designated responsibilities. Now, that has not satisfied the movement at all. Mm. What is now being demanded is Piñera to go with the president to be removed and the convening of a constituent assembly to restructure the whole economic model and to restructure the whole of the country. People have no trust whatsoever in this government and they want it out. They want Piñera out. And really, you could say the credibility of the government has collapsed to an all-time low. Pinera's approval ratings are down to about 14%, wow. which is incredibly low for a president in Latin America. And really, the government is just floating like a dead corpse on the sea of a mass movement. Yeah, <laughs> it's just there, ticking along with no credibility and no authority. The initial spark for this mass movement was a 30 peso hike in the cost of metro tickets. Now, that's equivalent to about three pence in Britain or four cents in the United States. Clearly, that's not enough to provoke revolutionary upheavals. And indeed, the movement has come out with this slogan, it's not 30 pesos, it's 30 years. What does that mean? Well, that's a very concrete expression of it's not 30 pesos in itself. That was the trigger for this whole movement to erupt. It was a straw that broke the camel's back. Mm. There's been one series of attacks after another. And by the way, In Santiago now, it's one of the most expensive cities in the world. The average wage, and I'd stress there that's the average wage, 
is five hundred dollars a month. So there's a lot of people living on a lot less than that. Mm. Now, against that background, if you're paying one dollar for a metro ticket, yeah, it is quite a sizable chunk of your wages will go on transport. But it's it's true. It's not. That's not a fundamental issue. This is a revolt against low wages, against abuse. The legal working hours in Chile are 45 hours a week. It's precarious work. It's an appalling pension system where for decades workers have paid in to a pension system which now pays out very little in return when workers reach retirement aid. It's cuts in the education budget. It's inefficiency. It's corruption. It's against an entire political caste which is seen completely divorced and detached from the realities of life for the vast mass of the Chilean population. So this 30 years they're talking about, this is talking about the 89 supposed transition democracy at the end of the dictatorship and actually there would have been, I imagine, a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of hope that that would have meant an improvement in living conditions but it's just, as you mentioned earlier, been a carrying on of the same neoliberal policies attacking workers, young people, the mass of the population for three decades. In fact, Chile is the most unequal society in the OECD, isn't it? With 1% of the population receiving 33% of the nation's wealth. That's an incredible statistic. And Piñera, the president himself, is a billionaire. Absolutely. And it's, it's accumulation of that. And the perception and the feeling of inequality is palpable amongst the Chilean population. And it's a revolt against all of that. And you see, contained within this is also a revolt against the political structure that was imposed. Because although you had the transition to so-called democracy in 1989, it was extremely limited. It was a thin veneer of democracy. Mm. As we've seen with the actions of some of the police and sections of the army, a whole layer, in reality, the Pinochet machine and mentality of the component members of the state machine remain within the state machine. They've not been purged. It's riddled with relations of former collaborators, torturers of the dictatorship, and there's a whole layer of a Pinochet legacy which is there. Added to which, within the transition, most of the laws decreed by the Pinochet dictatorship remain intact. The labour laws, which restrict the right to strike, mm. make it extremely difficult to organise the trade union movement. The declaration of the state of emergency and the powers contained within the state of emergency are all inherited from the Pinochet era. Even the way the parliamentary system works, you have an unbelievably undemocratic system with the Senate and whereby the president can decide what the Congress will debate and discuss when this proposal is put forward. It's a completely Bonapartist system. Uh, and what do you mean by Bonapartist? A repressive position which is unaccountable, which partly balances a little bit between the classes, but is riding above society and not accountable to it. A repressive, partial dictatorship is what in reality exists in Chile and has always been the case. And that's been reflected in the way the police have been used in brutal repression against all of the movements that have taken place in the last 30 years, in particular against the Mapuche people in the south of the country. So this is one of the indigenous groups? The main indigenous group in Chile. Now you've mentioned the military junta run by Augusto Pinochet. That was a neoliberal dictatorship beginning in 1973 and officially ending in 1989. In fact, you were there under the dictatorship, I believe, Tony, weren't you? And you can maybe talk about that in a moment. But the current president, Sebastian Piñera of National Renewal, which is one of the main capitalist parties in Chile, 
has resorted, as you've mentioned, to the hunters' methods against the movement today. Could you say some more about that as well? I was there during the 1980s on behalf of the CWI, working with other comrades to try and build a revolutionary group in and participating in the struggle against the dictatorship. There was enormous hopes. And by the way, that movement in the 1980s almost came to the point of insurrection. Mm. That was reflected in the scale of the protests. The very fact the Communist Party, against its usual policy, had to set up an armed wing was a reflection of the fact that big chunks of the youth were moving in the direction of going for an armed insurrection against the Pinochet dictatorship. But the transition has taken place. But it was a fraud of a transition. The expectations at the beginning of it were dashed very rapidly. And what you see now is the old mentality of the regime, of the dictatorship, is reflected in how the government has responded. They immediately assumed that because of the fear, because of the repression which has been carried out over a period of decades, that once they face this movement, it will be enough to simply deploy the special riot squads of the police and then to declare a state of emergency and then put the army on the streets. And, and also they, to carry out torture, haven't they been and, doing so? Yeah, well, to carry out repression, but then to revert back to torture. We had the discovery in Bakadano Metro Station, which I lived next door to in the 1980s, incidentally. In the tunnels of that, there's a secret torture cell being discovered. And there's been brutal torture. There's been over 500 people, according to medical reports, are now being shot by the state forces. Just during this movement? During the course of this movement. Thousands more have been beaten, have been attacked, and suffered different forms of repression. And they assumed that this would be enough. But it wasn't enough. It enraged people, because the deployment of the military back on the streets conjured up all of the memories of what it was like under the old military dictatorship, and people concluded we are not prepared to tolerate going back to that situation. And they defied that. They defied the curfew, they defied the state of emergency, and very heroically have taken to the streets, but you've seen absolutely brutal recession of drive-by shootings by the police, or pensioners being attacked and beaten up, mm. but it's failed to cower the movement. And faced with this monster of a demonstration, we see the government compelled to back down. And by the way, you can see the mentality of the regime. Pinera comes onto the television and declares, we are at war. And by that, he meant they're at war with the mass of the Chilean population. And it provoked rage amongst the people who would not be prepared to be subjected to this degree of repression or intimidated by it. Now, the movement has called for a constituent assembly, and there's actually a tradition of making this demand in Chile. What is a constituent assembly, and how does the Committee for a Workers' International think one can be convened? Well, that's an important question. It's taken up in Chile, and it's come up in a whole series of Latin American countries, because in a number of Latin American countries, if not the majority, the transition from the old military regimes has been partial. The parliamentary democracies which have been established have been very restrictive, and therefore it is quite popular, certainly on the left, to demand a constituent assembly. In Chile, that has now become a mass clamour and demand. And what people mean by that is the idea in convening an assembly which will be a representative body of the whole of society, and in Chile, as they put it, a constituent assembly that will resolve the social demands of the workers and of the people. And what they're demanding in Chile is now the end of the economic model and a complete restructuring of the political infrastructure 
and it's directed against the rich, powerful and elite, against this 1%. Now that's what the masses demand. It's a democratic demand with the constituent assembly. Now, we in the CWI would support that, but we go further and say a constituent assembly to achieve these ends needs to be a revolutionary constituent assembly that would really be comprised of representatives of workers, the middle layers of society, of the students, of the poor, of the urban poor, representatives of the rank and file, soldiers as well, and all sections of society bar the capitalists. A revolutionary constituent assembly should be convened to discuss the measures necessary to resolve the crisis in the interests of the working population. But we can put no trust in Piñera or his regime that they will convene a democratic body of that character. And therefore we would demand that a revolutionary constituent assembly is convened and it should be convened by the working people themselves through the formation of committees of struggle, committees of action, committees of defence, democratically elected in all of the workplaces, all of the local communities, linking up on a citywide, regional and national basis, and that the body of that character, with democratically elected delegates subject to recall, should take the steps to convene a revolutionary constituent assembly to resolve the problems in the interests of the mass of the population. And we would argue that such a revolutionary constituent assembly ought to adopt socialist policies taking Big businesses, the banks out of the hands of the capitalists, which, whether it's been the military dictatorship, the supposed democracy, or even a real democracy, so-called, really, the power remains in the hands of the financiers and the industrialists. Absolutely. We would say that a revolutionary constituent assembly of that form should take the necessary steps, together with the committees of struggle, to establish, first of all, a government of the workers and the poor, that would then take the necessary measures to nationalise the decisive sectors of the economy, including those owned by uh, the imperialist companies from the outside. And by the way, an important advance in this movement is the Dock Workers' Union Mm. have come out in demand for the nationalisation of the copper industry, which is crucial because of its domination or the role it plays in the economy of Chile. We would support the nationalisation of the democratic socialist plan being introduced, which would have the objective of abolishing capitalism and introducing an emergency plan to rebuild the economy in the interests of working people. Now you've mentioned the repression, the forces of the state being used against this movement and also that we would want a revolutionary constituent assembly to include as well as the rural and urban poor, the workers, the middle layers, also representatives of the rank and file of the military. How has the military responded, the ranks of the military responded to this movement? You've seen two responses really. But most significantly, you see the beginnings of a split opening up within the state apparatus, particularly within within the military. It's been reflected in a number of incidents where soldiers have joined the demonstration. You've had soldiers joining the demonstration in some incidents. In another incident, a rank-and-file soldier refused to carry out the orders he was given. He's now languishing in a military prison. In Akiki. The mass demonstration took to the streets and marched on the barracks of the army. The army uh, at that stage just withdrew and didn't attack the population. And there's been incidents, for example, in Vinia del Mar, where rank-and-file soldiers have put themselves between demonstrators and the riot police Mm -hmm. to prevent the riot police coming forward. In other words, there's a split beginning to open up within the state machine and big sections of the rank-and-file of the army in particular who come from a working-class background, could be one to the side and would support the movement which is currently taking place. 
Of course, within the police, you have a somewhat different position. Some of the rank-and-file police can come over, but you have these vicious anti-riot squads. They're the special forces, which we would demand that those squads are just abolished and disbanded. So there are splits appearing in the forces of the Chilean capitalist state. Now, that's an important factor in driving through revolutionary change. On top of this, Lenin talks about four conditions for revolution. He talks about the ruling class being unable to rule in the old way, which is true in Chile now. The middle classes in ferment and looking for a route to a new society rather than clinging to the old, which is also true. I mean, there's been the symphony orchestra has been playing folk songs, hasn't it, by one of the old revolutionary heroes from the past in Chile. The working class is in motion and willing to fight to the end, which seems true as well, the incredible mass movements taking place. The fourth condition, Lenin says, is a mass revolutionary workers' party so that this movement has a way to coordinate itself to meet the resistance of the old order with politically and organisationally unified action. What is the state of the left parties and working class organisations in Chile? Well, the movement is beginning to organise. We should stress here that this movement began as a spontaneous uprising of the people. It wasn't organised or initiated by anybody. Mm. It was an outpouring of, of rage. And by the way, in a certain sense, that was its strength. Then, as the movement goes on, can also become its weakness, because what we've had is all of the old traditional parties have abandoned the struggle of the working class. The traditional parties of the left, the Socialist Party... No relation. No, there's no relation to our party in England and Wales. But the Socialist Party, which was akin to the Labour Party, really, but had a very, very left and radical tradition, semi-Trotsky's tradition, historically. That completely capitulated to capitalism mm. in the course of the late 1980s and 1990s and swung over to the right. The party, the Socialist Party today, which was the party of Salvador Allende, is completely unrecognisable. It's gone so far to the right. Some of the leaders have even been implicated in drug trafficking. Uh, in, the, in the recent period and therefore it, it's not an instrument for the struggle of the working class in Chile today. The Communist Party unfortunately has institutionalised itself, sold its soul to get representatives into the Congress and has acted as a break on the movements unfortunately and as yet there's not been the emergence of an organised political voice and expression of the working class. There is indeed quite a strong hostility towards the idea of political parties, which you can understand, mm. given the betrayals which have taken place from the parties of the left and how all the other parties have just betrayed, one after another, the aspirations and the interests of the mass of the Chilean population. So there is resistance to the idea of a political party and indeed to organisation, though that is beginning to change. There is a broad social movement, it's called Unidad Social, Social unity, which comprises some trade unions, the movement against the pension system, the AFP. It includes dockers, the copper workers, health workers, the teachers are involved in it, local community social organisations, some women's organisations, and the student federations are in it. And that was responsible for the calling the two-day general strike which took place. Now, okay. correctly, that organisation has come out demanding Pinera should resign, has demanded a constituent assembly and very significantly has now called for local committees to be formed in the areas. To what degree that happens, we have to see. So there's a beginning of an organisation beginning to emerge and take place. There's not yet been steps taken towards a new political party, 
which is something which the movement is going to have to confront and face up to in the course of the next period. Now, you mentioned Salvador Allende there, who, of course, was the head of the 1970 to 1973 popular unity government, a very radical left-wing government, which carried out not a revolution, but went a lot of the way towards one. And that fell, of course, in Augusto Pinochet's military coup in 1973. But some of the traditions of the popular unity government and movement have started to re-emerge at this time. What traditions are those? Why are they important? And what lessons do you think we should draw from how they ended last time? Well, the main thing there is, I think, that the popular unity coalition, headed by Salvador Allende, in that period, the revolution in Chile went a very long way. You had the cordones, the industrial cordones, which were committees formed in all of the factories and the workplaces. There was an element of dual power which existed. There was a whole revolutionary upheaval. Allende was compelled to nationalise sections of the economy. And incidentally, the initiatives that they took under that movement, some of the first steps, for example, of the organisation of the web and the internet took place in Chile in that time. Really? It was developed, there was people from Manchester University went down to try and help the movement, and it was done to try and coordinate production to break a reactionary truck owner's strike, which took place to try and bring down the government. And that's something that's not recognised when they talk about the internet and the workplace <laughs> today. But the first tentative, it was quite primitive, but nevertheless, the first tentative steps were taken there. It was an incredible upsurge of revolution. The consciousness was there of solidarity, of standing together, of the workers leading the struggle. And it had a phenomenal international impact because of that and one support of a working class around the world. That's why the Chilean dictatorship was particularly brutal and repressive in terms of trying to eliminate the movement because mm. it went so far and they were threatened so much. Now, you've seen some of those additions begin to be rekindled. The old songs of the popular unity coming back, the chants, the idea of struggling together, of the people united would never be defeated, or Pueblo Unido, Jamás Cerrado Vencido, these sort of slogans have emerged very much as of the fore, as of course has been the popularity of Salvador Allende, of course, was killed during the military coup itself. So they're beginning to re-emerge, they're not fully there yet, but they are beginning, which represents an important point of departure. Mm. Now, at the same time, we have to draw the lessons because, you know, it went a very long way, that revolutionary movement. So the question is posed, why was it defeated? Mm. And here we have the central point. The mistakes were made by the leadership. The masses were clamouring for revolution. Unfortunately, Allende, despite sacrificing his life at the end, was not prepared to go the whole way. And they tried to seek a compromise. I mean, they even took Pinochet into the cabinet. They didn't imagine or wouldn't believe that the army would move against a democratically elected government, and they assumed it would be okay. And rather than taking the measures to win over the rank and file of the army and the soldiers, rather than allowing the cordones industriales, the workers' committees, and other organisations to come together and really form a workers' government, they tried to seek a line of compromise. And it drove them, in the end, to taking some very unfortunate steps. I mean, what was regarded as Allende's darkest hour with what happened? Because in Concepcion and Valparaiso, the rank and file in the Navy were against the coup, and they knew the coup was being planned, mm. and they organised opposition cells against it. They were discovered by the officers who arrested them, and unfortunately, 
Lyon did not intervene to support the sailors and allowed them to be imprisoned, and they were viciously tortured by the rank and file sailors who had come out and were trying to organise against the coup. They estimated about a third of the army supported Allende, a third were with the right, and a third were wavering in the middle. And they could have appealed to them, but they had to go on the offensive, even on the day of the coup. Well, a week before the coup, you had a mass demonstration in Santiago in front of the presidential palace of half a million people demanding arms to defend the government. Unfortunately, the leadership did not arm the people and go forward, even on the day of the coup. Had they called for an immediate general strike and for the workers to flood into the city centre, as they did during the course of this movement, mm. it's probable the coup could have been thrown back and defeated. But unfortunately they didn't, and they adopted the mistaken tactic, you know, going to the factories to defend them under this false misinterpretation of Lenin, when Lenin referred to the factories as being the fortress of the revolution. They sent the workers into individual factories on the day of the coup, <laughs> and allow them just to be picked off by the military units rather than pull everybody together for a mass defiance and defence of the presidential palace. So there were important lessons and mistakes there, but the central lesson was they didn't go the whole way to complete it. You can challenge capitalism and you can push it back. This movement has pushed Pinera back to force reforms, but unless you're prepared to go the whole way and finish it off as a system, and for the working people to take over their running society, introduce a democratic, socialist plan and structure of society, then the capitalist class and the reactionary forces will always bide their time and prepare to strike back against you. And now we have to draw the lesson today for this movement as well. Pinera's made concessions now. He'll come back with a fist to take what he's given with the left hand to take back with the right as soon as he judges its opposite. If he continues in power, it's possible in the next period they will have to sacrifice Pinera. You couldn't rule out the fact they were removing him and try and find a more malleable, acceptable, friendly face of Chilean capitalism mm. to try and contain the situation. The problem they have with that, they remove Pinera, it will just embolden the masses tremendously and can push the movement even further forward. But there's many lessons we have to draw from the popular unity period in terms of this struggle, the struggle in Ecuador and the struggles that are taking place around the world at this stage. So, finish the job. Take the capitalists out of power. Don't flinch at removing their leaders. Take them out of positions within the state, within industry, and so on, and organise to do so. Now, what immediate demands would a mass revolutionary organisation coming out of this movement in Chile need to include in its programme to achieve that? Well, what we demand at this stage, obviously, was remove Pamnera from power mm -hmm. for committees of action, democratic committees of action and a struggle to be formed, for the popular tribunals of the people to investigate the repression and bring to trial all of those responsible for carrying out brutal repression, torture and other measures against protesters, the immediate release of all protesters, the immediate release of any soldiers in prison for refusing to obey orders, and then, of course, it needs to go further for the convening of an all-out general strike, for the committees of action to come together on a citywide, regional and national basis, to convene elections to a revolutionary constituent assembly, to appeal to the rank and file of the army and the police to join and form committees and join in the struggle, and then to put forward a programme to break with capitalism based on a democratic plan of production which would mean expropriating the major companies, the banks, from private ownership 
and allowing a democratic socialist plan of production to be introduced. That would be the only way to guarantee that this movement is taken forward and the social demands that the workers are now raising to solve their problems is the only way that they could be fully realised. Thanks very much, Tony. Thank you. You can hear more about the revolutionary events in Latin America and discuss all the big issues facing working class and young people today at Socialism 2019. It's a full weekend of discussion and debate on socialist ideas to change the world and the biggest socialist preparation event for the campaign in Britain's just-announced general election. It's on Saturday the 2nd and Sunday the 3rd of November in central London. Find out more and book your tickets at socialism2019.net. After months of umming and aahing, finally, a general election has been declared. It's on. It's going to be on the 12th of December. We're going to have our general election. It's our chance to kick out Boris and the Tories, whose policies for the last 10 years have only made us poorer. The real question is, what position is Jeremy Corbyn in in this election? Mm. Now, we think it's a big mistake to unite with the pro-cuts Blairites. And unfortunately, these people who have stabbed Corbyn in the back for the last three or four years, many of them have been re-selected for this election. For example, in Enfield North, whose Blairite MP defected, left the party. All the left-wing and socialist candidates were excluded from that nomination process. Absolutely scandalous. Mm -hmm. We think we need mandatory re-selection in the Labour Party, real democratic trade union control of their party, so we can actually have candidates who stand up for pro-working class socialist policies. So that means that any time there's an election, it's never assumed that the incumbent will stand again. There is always an open contest to find out who will be standing in that seat. And trade unions, for example, should be allowed to nominate candidates directly to parliamentary shortlists to help guarantee working class organised representation. Without having these kind of policies, this false unity of the Blairites has meant that Jeremy Corbyn's anti-austerity message has become almost inaudible Mm. in the last few months. And worse than that, the Blairites are against the general election. They don't want Jeremy Corbyn as Prime Minister. Because they're they're afraid that he might win the general election. And unfortunately, even some on the left of the party have been against the general election. Because they're afraid they might lose. John McDonnell, he's been prioritising a second EU referendum instead of a general election, which would only lead to dividing working class people instead of uniting around a programme that can improve the lives of workers in Britain. And all this has meant that a lot of people in Britain think Jeremy Corbyn doesn't want a general election. Mm. They don't think he wants a general election because they assume that he's going to lose it. And if he can't stand up to even the Blairites in his own party, how is he going to stand up to the capitalist class, the ruling class, the elite in Britain, and pursuing his policies? But like in 2017, this can all change. The Socialist Party said then... Loud and clear, and we think the same again, Jeremy Corbyn can win this election with socialist policies. Then he put forward things like scrapping tuition fees, building hundreds of thousands of council homes, raising the minimum wage to £10 an hour, scrapping zero-hour contracts, nationalising Royal Mail, whose workers could be going on strike in the course of the election. Mm. What effect that's going to have when we have 110,000 striking postal workers striking for the policies that Jeremy Corbyn says he's going to implement when he's Prime Minister, as well as calling for the nationalisation of rail and energy. That had an electrifying effect on millions of working class and young people in the last general election. It could do the same again. Jeremy has to go further this time. We say he's also got to say he's going to scrap universal credit, stop the council cuts, 
as well as abolishing tuition fees, scrapping student debt, that's going to win students, but also their parents to go out and vote Labour in the election, <laughs> as well as how do we achieve this? How do we pay for this? We say the banks and the big corporations have to be nationalised under democratic control of the working class. And any company that tries to use Brexit or anything else to cut jobs, bring in closures, they should be nationalised too. And if you put forward these policies, he'd also have the opportunity to say what kind of Brexit deal he'd be fighting for, how he'd be linking up with trade unions and workers and mass movements taking place in Europe for a Brexit deal in the interests of the working class, not big business and the elite as Boris Johnson has negotiated with the EU. So that's the big story and we're going to have a lot more coverage during this general election campaign on how the workers' movement can start to reverse austerity and elect an anti-austerity government to advance the interests of the working class. But there's also been a development in the inquiry into the Grenfell Tower atrocity. Just after the general election two years ago, in an awful fire, 72 people lost their lives. The inquiry has finally published its first part of the report into what happened and it's scandalous quite frankly. The report focuses just on the fire service. We say any criticism of the decision-making by the fire service must be placed in the context of the failures of the building and its management. And this report ignores the real culprits, the privatisers and capitalism. The result is that the inquiry deflects blame away from the establishment and the press have reported it to appear as if firefighters who risked their lives on the night are to blame. In the Socialist Party, we think... This atrocity was completely preventable. It was a result of decades of putting profit before safety. Let's not forget, Boris Johnson, when he was London Mayor, cut £29 million from the fire service. What did this mean? 10 stations were closed, 14 fire engines were lost, and 552 firefighters were sacked. Mm. There's still loads and loads of these buildings covered in flammable cladding up and down the country. The same thing could happen again. In the course of the election, Labour should say it's going to force landlords to remove the flammable cladding. Money's no object. We're going to make big business and the banks pay for it. And really, the scandalous first report that's come out shows that we need a new inquiry, one that's public, democratically run, but actually run by the local community and the trade unions, so we can actually hear a working class voice about how we prevent atrocities like Grenfell ever happening again. Karl Marx said theory is a guide to action and socialism agrees so here is some of the latest news on workers' struggles over the past few days. First of all, the General Secretary election in the Civil Servants Union PCS is on. Yes, we've talked about it on the podcast before. Marion Lloyd, Socialist Party member, is running to be General Secretary of the 180,000 strong PCS Civil Servants Union. The election for that starts on the 7th of November. So Marion has spoke to the socialists this week done an interview about why she's standing what program she's standing on and so on and her program is of coordinating the fight on pay jobs pensions office closures all the things that have been attacked in the civil service and also on a program of union democracy so that's putting the ordinary members of the union in charge rather than unelected officials and staff that's right yeah and as part of that she's showing that she's going to stand on a worker's wage so for example she says unlike incumbent mark savocca who pledged to not take the full general secretary salary but does I will stay on my civil service wage and publicise details of the money I will give back to the PCS. Great. Yeah. We also carry lots of quotes in the paper as well from PCS members and activists who are supporting Marion and why they are. You know, and Socialist Party members and her supporters in PCS will be out to civil service workplaces across the country from next week onwards, building support for Marion and her campaign. 
Next, there's going to be a strike in McDonald's. There is. So workers at six McDonald's stores, all in South London, are going to go on strike on the 12th of November. They're all members of the Baker's Union. And that's the BFAWU. That's right, yep. And they're demanding a £15 an hour minimum wage, an end to youth rates, the choice of guaranteed hours of up to 40 a week, notice of shifts four weeks in advance, union recognition and other things. So Melissa Evans, who works at McDonald's in Wandsworth Town, she's spoken and she has said, I need £15 an hour so I can show my son that poverty is not the only option. Me and my colleagues are coming together in a union to tackle poverty pay, insecurity of hours and lack of respect, which has gone on at McDonald's for far too long. Great. So the workers know themselves, you know, they're only paid a fraction of the value of the meals they produce and serve up. And the action is going to take place at the same time as other action in other countries. This isn't the first McDonald's strike in the UK either. The Baker's Union have organised ones in Crayford and Cambridge in January 2018. And just those two stores going out were the biggest McDonald's UK pay rise for a decade. Wow. Yep. And the second one was a joint walkout with low-paid workers at TJ Fridays, Weatherspoons and Uber Eats on the 4th of October 2018. The stores involved this time are Wandsworth Town, Downham, Balham, Deptford, Catford and Crayford. So get down there and support them if you can. We'll be doing that. We say that the Baker's Union and other unions involved in last October's action should obviously support this one and use these upcoming strikes as a starting point to coordinate a further round of walkouts in the hospitality and fast food sector where worker exploitation and low levels of unionisation is rife, as well as, of course, low pay. And Argos, they, what do you call it? A department? It's not a department store, it's a catalogue. Just say retailer. The retailer Argos has very generously cut its workers' already meagre Christmas bonus in half. Yeah, they have. So millionaire retail boss Mike Coop, and he was the one you might remember, was actually caught on camera on the BBC singing, we're in the money, live on TV before an interview, which was actually about the possible Sainsbury's Argus merger, which has now taken place. Now that retail boss, they've halved Argus's workers' Christmas bonus to just five quid. They employ 16,000 shop staff who earn a typical £11,931 a year, which contrasts with the £3.9 million that Coop pockets after his bonus soared to £593,000, yet he's cutting Argos's workers' bonus from 10 to 5 quid. Oh my god. Now, his excuse for cutting the bonus is that it brings him in line with Sainsbury's workers who already only get a 5 <laughs> now, Well, that's all right. Then. Exactly, yeah. Despite Sainsbury's buying Argos for £1.4 billion in 2016, mm. you know, it shows that both these companies, and now that they're one as well, are hugely profitable, can afford way more than a fiver, not just for Argos staff, but Sainsbury's workers as well. You know, And this is on the back of Sainsbury's themselves, already making moves to cut paid breaks, special rates for Sundays, annual bonuses, and, and all the rest of it. You know, It's only October, but Cooper's already auditioning for the role of Scrooge. <laughs> Well, perhaps the trade unions ought to play the role of the ghosts of Christmases past, present and future and win that money back. Definitely. And library workers in Bradford in Yorkshire have been on strike. Here's an interview conducted by Ian Dalton, a Socialist Party organiser in Yorkshire. Ian Dalton here with Karen, who's a Unite Shop student in the libraries in Bradford. They're here starting a two-day strike today in the city centre with quite a visible picket line outside the main uh, library and a bit of a protest as well. So what I'd start by asking is why you're on strike today? Bradford Council have put forward proposals to cut 65% of the library's museums and galleries budget over the next two years and at the moment it's untenable. If they do that, we've no chance. They will employ, well they won't employ, but they will bring in volunteers to do the job that staffed libraries should have paid, professional, knowledgeable library staff. 
And I was speaking to people on the picket line today who were saying, you know, Bollinghall Museum, the library there, that's run by volunteers, but the volunteers are on holiday for two weeks, so there's no library service at the moment, anyhow, regardless of the strike. Yeah. And children are not allowed in on their own. They have to go in Bollinghall with an adult, which kind of negates the purpose of having a library there for children to maybe get dropped off on a Saturday morning, go get the books, do a bit of homework. It's a lovely room full of books, but it's not a library. And you were saying earlier to me about big staffing shortages already because this is really followed year on year cuts yeah. where the council tried to move to volunteers, tried to cut back on staffing levels. And there's a lot of increased numbers of closures taking place for like an afternoon and so yeah, on. Yeah, there are. There's been 203 hours so far lost in staffed hours between April and October. And we're halfway through the year. So if that heads for 400, libraries are never closed. The only time we used to close is if the buses weren't running, it was snowing, that was it. And now it's at the drop of a hat. We can't staff them, there are not enough of us to staff them as much as we want to. No, exactly, and I think it's a vital service for people. We were doing a stall here with the Bradford branch of the Social Party on Saturday, and we got huge public support. A lot of people didn't know about the strike, but when they found out about it, were very supportive, particularly families coming up with young children who use the libraries all the time. This is the start of, I think, 14 days of planned action over it the next is. couple of months. It is. What are Unite calling for? We want the council to halt the flawed process that they're determined, or they seem determined, to push through. We want them to come and talk to us, to include staff. At the moment, it's tick box exercises. And what they're doing, we have 12 team leaders. Three have gone on voluntary redundancy, or they've gone, so there are nine. They want them down to three. So a couple of weeks ago, we had an exercise in a staff exercise where they shut the libraries on the Wednesday morning, they got all the staff together to give them ideas on how to run the library service in the next couple of years. They're currently interviewing the team leaders so that six of them will lose their jobs and they want them to give them ideas on how to run the library service over the next two years and it's wrong, it is so wrong. I'm sure many people have had experiences actually where companies have been expecting them to train their replacements or to train oh, yeah. volunteers and yeah. so on and it's it's a ludicrous situation because what you end up with is people who don't really have all the training and are not being paid properly. It's exercise in trying to save money and you know for private companies boosting profits or with the council basically doing the Tories dirty work of carrying out the cuts for them. Yeah it is and on one hand, we have um, a hybrid library where they say that library staff and volunteers are equal. And then we have the situation where they say, well, volunteers can't actually do what you're doing. So what are they going to do? We're, we're going to be nursemaiding volunteers who haven't got a clue what to do, trying to do our job plus their job. It's not viable. One of the things we were putting out is actually the council here the last figures we saw had £31 million unallocated usable reserves. There's actually £165 million total, but £2 million were for cuts. Reserves could be used to keep the service open as a stopgap for the council to fight for more money. There was a lot of support for the idea, actually, of the Labour Council standing up for working people as opposed to carrying out the dirty work. It would be lovely if the Labour Council, as the party of social mobility, would stand up for the workers and the residents of Bradford and there is a lot of money in reserves and I know some of it is revenue and some is capital. Um, they're restricted by what they can use but to take 1.4 million out of those reserves over three years for the capital culture 
when they want to restrict libraries, galleries and museums is laughable. It's ludicrous. And it, it's absolutely hypocritical and you've got the National Science and Media Museum just over the road, they're on strike yeah. on Wednesday as yeah. well. It's almost like a bid for a city of culture that's not going to have very much culture left if the cuts carry on. It was a gift. The morning I woke up and it said they've applied for the capital of culture, I just laughed. I was sat looking at my phone thinking, is it April the 1st? It's ludicrous and it's it, they won't get it based on... Things haven't changed in Bradford regarding libraries, galleries and museums from 2003, the last time that they bid for it and the last time that we spent an awful lot of money and we didn't get it. So nothing's changed, nothing's improved, it's getting worse, it's a ridiculous idea. No, thank you for that, Karen. Is You're there anything else welcome. you'd like to add? Is there any ways that people can support the strike? Obviously come to the uh, picket lines and protests that are called in the future, but anything else people can do online? Or... Uh, yeah, there is still an ongoing petition, there's a Unite petition online. We presented it to council last week with nearly 2,000 signatures on it. We're still keeping it going and if we have to take another 2,000, we'll take another 2,000. We're not going to stop, we're not going to shut up, and libraries are so vital, bring it on. Socialism is produced by the Socialist Party, the England and Wales section of the Committee for Workers International. This week we heard from Tony Sonwa speaking to James Ivans, along with Ian Patson and me, Scott Jones. Help us spread the word by giving us a five-star review, and subscribing so you don't miss out. Don't forget to recommend us to your co-workers and friends. We want you to join the discussion. Come to Socialism 2019, a weekend of dialogue and debate on political ideas to change the world, on the 2nd or 3rd of November in central London. Find out more, book your tickets at socialism2019.net. We also want you to send us recordings from picket lines and campaigns, and reports of your activity. And we want your questions, comments, and ideas for future episodes. Email socialismpodcast at socialistparty.org.uk. Socialism the podcast has no wealthy backers. We survive thanks to the financial support of ordinary working class and young people, and we're proud of the political independence that gives us. If you like what you hear, help us take the fight to big business. You can make a regular donation or a one-off payment at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash donate. If you agree with the policies and actions the Socialist Party is fighting for, we need you. Join our fight for a winner's strategy in the labour and trade union movement. Join the Socialist Party now. Send us your details at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash join. And if you live outside England and Wales and want to join the fight for socialism in your country, contact the Committee for Workers International by visiting socialistworld.net. Till next time, solidarity.